0: A Lifetime Original Podcast.
1: This episode contains talk of stillbirths and miscarriages, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Please note that we've changed the names of the children mentioned in this episode. November 13th, 2008 is a beautiful fall day in Georgia, but many residents in the Thomasville area are inside mourning with their loved ones. A funeral is underway at the Rose City Pentecostal Church, and it is no ordinary loss. Inside
2: the small church are framed photos of sonograms. On display are teddy bears. Community members gather to offer sympathies to the Wilfred family.
1: Four of the five Wilfred children huddle together and weep. Leslie Wilfred, the well-known matriarch of a local family, lost the twins she was carrying just three days ago. She had suddenly gone into labor just four months into her pregnancy. The babies, sadly, didn't make it. And the family is heartbroken.
2: But tragedy is no stranger to the Wilfred family. They have a past that is rife with it. What they don't know is that in just a matter of days, their past tragedies and private devastations will become public, and an entire community will be turned upside down. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: The
2: Wilford family live in a cul-de-sac on the outskirts of Thomasville, Georgia a beautiful southern city known for its Victorian architecture and gorgeous blooming roses. Like Thomasville, the Wilfrids are a blend of traditional and new. Chris and Leslie are belated high school sweethearts, you might say, because they met in high school, but then they didn't end up getting together until a decade later. They got married just a year ago in 2007. Leslie's studying to be a nurse, and Chris works for an industrial engineering company. Every day he commutes to his office in Tallahassee, and Leslie is usually the one home with the kids.
1: Now, they're a mixed marriage family, so Leslie and Chris both have kids from each of their previous marriages. Chris has a 10-year-old son named David, and Leslie has four kids of her own. She has 7-year-old Sam, 9-year-old Sally, 11-year-old Lena, and 13-year-old Luke. There's a Facebook photo of the family, and it shows Chris and then Leslie's four kids, and they're all posed together in front of this, like, wooden lattice-type thing with leaves popping out. It's a pretty cute photo. I mean, Leslie is incredibly pregnant, and the kids are all together. They're smiling. They're adorable. They're all dressed in clean, colorful outfits.
2: Chris in this photo is standing farthest to the left. He's a thin man with a downturned nose, a heavy brow, and dark eyes. And his lips are pressed together, and I guess what might be described as a smile looks a little bit more to me like a grimace. Quinn, not everybody
1: can pose for photos You're right. that well. Some people have a little bit of a deficit there. We can't fault That's them. his resting face. Um, That's his resting grimace face is what they call well,
2: it. Well, Leslie, by contrast, is beaming in this photo. And she's just adorable looking. She's got big teeth, 90s full house bangs, and a bright red button down that calls attention to her swollen belly.
1: Wait, you're saying she has 90s full house bangs in 2008? Yeah, right. Okay, we get the vibe. Yeah. We get the vibe. Yeah. I think we're all on the same page here. <laughs> Leslie isn't just pregnant. She's pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. And the couple is absolutely ecstatic to grow their family. Here they are. They're step-parents to each other's kids. But now they're going to have children together, which is really exciting And so, you know, they're the type of family, they take a bunch of photos and, you know, you know the vibe of the photos I'm about to talk about. There's a black and white, there's some of like her growing belly and like artfully placed hands of the parents on it. You know the vibe. Did you take that when you were pregnant? (laughs) No, no. No? You didn't? I know what you're talking about. I picture a
2: really big fan being involved and her wearing something that would flow and like blow in the wind. Like a
1: chiffon. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was pretty central to the belly in these photos. Um, They're a very religious couple. Some might say that they're God-fearing people. They go to church often. They're really active in their local church. Um, So I guess you can say they're feeling hashtag blessed. Leslie is 33, so she's she's getting up
2: there. She is flirting with that lovely time when people start to refer to your pregnancy as geriatric. I've been there, Leslie. I would say, like, shout out to the medical community. And can we just please not do that anymore? Can we please cut women a break? What if we call them um, anciently expecting?
1: <laughs> Too harsh? I don't know if that's any better. What about... What about
2: over the hill while under the hill
1: that sounds like you're about to die <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's just
1: don't I think it's think like that between that's... a rock and a hard place <laughs> okay what about this what about this what about silver foxy mamas oh I like that I would love that on a medical chart that's all I'm pitching okay put silver foxy mamas as a as <laughs> as on my chart I don't care how old I am that's what I want Leslie's studying to be a
2: nurse. Uh, She hopes to work in the maternity ward. She would know, as well as anyone, that once you get to your mid-30s, having babies, it gets a little bit tricky, and the Wilfrids certainly have not had the best of luck with health. In fact, they've had pretty horrendous luck.
1: Quinn would say horrendous luck. I would say maybe the worst luck I've ever seen in my entire life, and that's not an over-exaggeration by any means. Let's get into it. Leslie's oldest son, Luke, when he was a kid, he would have these horrible bouts of vomiting, like he couldn't keep anything down. He kept throwing everything up. And so the doctors found out that the solution was that he had to have his gallbladder removed as a kid. And while this helped remove some of those symptoms of vomiting, he ended up having some difficulties with his liver as he got older. And these complications with his liver became so bad that he needs a new liver. He needs a liver transplant. And his stepdad, Chris, is actually willing to donate part of his own liver to his
2: stepson. And Sally, the 9-year-old, she had it arguably even worse because she had leukemia. Leukemia! There were doctor's appointments, there were tests, there was chemo, really the whole gambit. Luckily, the family does have support from the community. Leslie's really involved in the church and in her kids' schools, so people know this family. And that's a blessing because this is predating crowdsourcing fundraising websites like GoFundMe, which would have been something they probably would have set up if it was today. Instead, what they do is local folks put a couple of canisters around the city. You know, I'm picturing like you go to the coffee shop and next to the tip jar is also like a picture of the family or something. And it says like, help Help out this family, their daughter has leukemia, whatever it is, and you can put some money in there. And the church also gives them a lot of money and aid. So this family just has to pour all of their energy and attention into caring for these two very sick kids. But don't forget, they have three other kids in this home—Lena, Sam, and David.
1: Leslie's two other kids, they're relatively healthy physically, but they do have their own hurdles. Over a decade ago, Leslie claimed that she'd been assaulted by a coworker. She was raped, and Lena is the product of that rape. Now, this is not a secret that is kept from Lena— Leslie has made it clear that that's how Lena was conceived, which must have been really hard for an 11-year-old to have to grapple with as she grows up. And then we have 7-year-old Sam. And while he has no known issues, it couldn't have been easy having two siblings who are sick and one sibling who's going through something so emotional. And then there's Chris's son, David. And he has a lot of issues.
2: He's sort of the black sheep of his family, and at just ten years old, he's a menace David the menace he's prone to violent outbursts, really serious behavioral issues, and Chris and Leslie they're just they're at a loss because David can't go out with them. They can't just do normal family outings and bring him. so really, the neighbors are never seeing him because his issues are just so severe. They're like, we're not going to take him anywhere. he's dangerous. Around the same time that this happy family photo was taken, David's episodes were escalating. David reportedly threatened his stepmom and his dad with a knife. They had to call the police on him. On their own child. You know, I truly can think of very few things worse than this, than to be afraid of someone that's under the same roof as you, but to also have the person that you are afraid of be the person you are supposed to care for and
1: protect. And this wasn't even the first time that they had to get the police involved. So with any series of events, especially with a child at the center of it, Child Protective Services is called CPS, and they have to investigate any threat, especially because children are involved. So they come into the Wilfrids' home and they meet with David, of course, but also they meet with Leslie and Chris. And I can only imagine it's probably a relief for Leslie and Chris to have just some support outside of the home. And Leslie is sort of leading these meetings with CPS, with the social workers, and she's telling them about David's behavior, and she also is sharing her concerns for her other kids, specifically for the unborn twins. She says that she's really worried that David's behavior will somehow affect and hurt the twins.
2: Yeah, sure. If you can't protect yourself or feel safe in your own home, how are you going to protect newborn babies? What's more vulnerable than a newborn? Well, I'll tell you, a premature baby. And in a terrible turn of events, only five months into Leslie's pregnancy, she goes into labor. On November 10th, 2008, she's alone at the hospital giving birth to a boy and a girl who she had planned on naming Ethan and Emily. Each baby takes just one breath before tragically passing away. Oof! Oy, this woman. She must be just in such a pit of despair because to have to be a good mom to all those kids that are having their own challenges. And at the same time you're subjected to all this grief. Um, I did have some friends that when we were having kids gave us this piece of advice that was like, think about it like when you're on the plane, put your mask on first. So this idea that like in order to be a good parent, you have to also take care of your basic needs first and, I don't know how she's doing that, feeling this much grief and then having all these kids that she also has to be 100% attentive to because they're high needs either behaviorally or health-wise.
1: Right. I mean, she has five kids, you know, her stepson, and she's expecting two more. That's seven kids. That's a lot of kids. And like you said, it's just there's so many needs that these kids have. It's like she can't catch a break. And what's crazy is finding out that she was by herself when she gave birth to the twins, that's really scary too. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't sound like the mask was fitting on her face when she was in the hospital by herself. And then she's taking Sally to these chemo appointments and she's handling all of the medical bills on her own. Like she's doing it all. She's doing everything by herself. It's almost like last week in our case we talked about it being too good to be true. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's too bad it can't be true. Like, how could this happen to anyone? It's an understatement to say that Leslie is absolutely heartbroken, absolutely devastated. Within hours of the birth of her twins, she calls her family and she delivers the devastating news. Everyone is just shocked. She asks them to come get her from the hospital. And Chris can't even see the babies because the hospital has already cremated the remains. The kids were so excited to meet their new siblings, and Chris was so excited for his two kids, but only Leslie got to meet the twins. The family has been through so much already with their other children's struggles. I mean, it's like, God, they already have a kid with cancer. As these God-fearing people, they must be like, what have we done to deserve this?
2: But Leslie needs to grieve. She needs closure on this dark chapter in her life. So the Wilfrids decide to hold a funeral for these stillborn baby twins. And a few days after the birth, the family and their community gather to mourn at their regular church, Rose City Pentecostal. And when folks arrive, wow, it's, it's a devastating sight. They're greeted by the pregnancy photos of Leslie's bare belly The ashes of these twins were placed in urns designed to look like teddy bears. And Leslie's gone the extra step and even framed and displayed her sonogram photos. Some people comment at the funeral that the babies look just like Chris. And others notice something a little peculiar, that the babies look a little further along than
1: 22 weeks. During the service, the minister reads a letter called A Letter to Our Daddy. It's a letter that Leslie wrote from the perspective of the twins as part of her grieving process. When she hands this to the minister to read, something in him feels uncomfortable doing so, but he obliges because he wants to help this family through what's going on. And as he reads it to the congregation, there is not a dry eye in the house. The letter says that the twins are in heaven waiting to meet their parents and their siblings. And all of Leslie's kids are in attendance at the funeral. And as young as they are, and while they might not fully grasp what's happening, they're there crying right alongside their parents. However, there is a notable exception. David, Leslie's stepson, is not in attendance.
2: So the Wilfred children are trying to process this horrible experience of losing these twins and some of them mention it at school to their teachers and their teachers are familiar with these kids mother they're familiar with leslie because she's very involved in the school and she's been very vocal with them about her children's ailments in fact on sally's first day of school leslie announced to the whole classroom that sally had cancer and might not live through the year
1: i'm sorry come again
2: Yes, I think she asked to stand up in front of this classroom of kids and tell them, you know, meet Sally. She is dying of cancer, and she might not be here the whole year, but, you know, welcome her.
1: Um, I just have to reiterate, Sally is nine years old, so Leslie's coming to a classroom full of nine-year-olds and relaying this information. My God, like, what a burden on the teachers and the Like I can't imagine the children. Oh my God, I hope she brought treats. I don't uh, think
2: they make cupcakes big enough to soften that blow. I I mean, it's like, it's
1: so like, wow, just wow. And so when the teachers hear about Leslie Wilfred's stillbirths from the Wilfred children, word of this gets back to CPS. And keep in mind, CPS still has a file open because CPS is still looking and investigating what's been going on with David. And so there are social workers and probation officers who are involved in the case. And when they hear about these stillbirths, something just doesn't feel right to them.
2: Yeah, you picture this woman coming to their office over and over again going, golly, I hope nothing happens to these babies. I really hope nothing happens to my unborn children. And then something does. I can see why that would trigger something. So the probation officer starts to do some very simple digging. He reaches out to Archbold Hospital, where Leslie had given birth, because he just wants to confirm this story, maybe talk to the doctor and get some more information. But they have no record of the birth. So he double-checks, triple-checks this doctor's name, They cannot even find a doctor in the hospital by that name. This doctor doesn't exist. This is obviously extremely strange. But, you know, they got to say to themselves, perhaps there's some sort of simple explanation. Maybe she just got the name of the hospital wrong. So they continue to hunt for information.
1: So the next thing they do is they check the coroner for a fetal death certificate for the twins. There's got to be one, right? He can't find any. And according to the coroner, one doesn't even exist. And not only that, but hospital officials tell him that the twins would never have been cremated so quickly. It's actually against their hospital policy.
2: Yeah, that did seem really quick. That dad's driving over and they're already Within cremated. Within hours. Yeah, and this just this can't all be clerical errors. At this point, it's very clear something's awry, and CPS files a complaint with the district attorney's
1: office alleging possible child abuse. The case falls into the competent hands of 60-year-old investigator Bob Bredel. Bob Bredel is this soft-spoken guy. He's got a long resume, a lot of experience. He's a military veteran with decades of law enforcement experience. He's got a bachelor's in criminal justice, and he has a master's in rehabilitative counseling. He's been with a special victims unit within the sheriff's department for a lot of years. Prior to that, he never could have taken on an assignment like
2: this because when his five kids were young, he just wouldn't have been able to manage uh, a case like this with possible child abuse involved. It would have been way too hard on him. But, you know, after having and raising five kids, he's probably just dead inside now and he has nothing left to lose. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, No, but he's become a very seasoned officer by now and his kids are older. So he has the time, the energy, and he is more motivated than ever. When he's handed the case, he assumes there's got to have just been a misunderstanding. How could there be no record of the births and no fetal death certificate? He's sure that he's going to be able to clear things up with a simple interview. So on November 14th, The day after the funeral, he and the coroner drive over to the Wilford home to just sort it out. But when they get there, things get
1: a whole lot weirder. How can it get any weirder than this? Oh, just wait.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When Investigator Bretel goes to Leslie Wilford's
1: home to ask about these weird inconsistencies in her story, Leslie is completely indignant. She tells him not only that she never gave birth, but that she has no idea why people are saying these things about her. I mean, sure, she was pregnant, she admits that, but not for long. A doctor informed her that she had miscarried soon after she realized she was pregnant. Investigator Bredel is so confused. Can we say gaslighting anyone? Yes, and Investigator Bredel walks away
2: from this wild conversation, just at a total loss. I mean, can you imagine this woman is telling him straight to his face that this never happened when an entire town showed up just yesterday? At a funeral. The day before? Yes. I mean, the whole household behind her was there. He's got to be gobsmacked. This must be so unexpected and off-putting and just knocks him completely off balance for this person to be looking him in the eye and telling such a bold lie. I mean, to say she's never pregnant when she had the funeral with her mourning family and the whole town
1: Yesterday? This is ludicrous. Do you think she still even had, like, flowers from the service behind her? Like, I can imagine she yes, had stuff. Yes, and she's, stuff. like, stepping
2: in front of them at the doorway to <laughs> try to like, cover them with her body.
1: I just get this wreath of carnations just on a given Thursday. Sure, nothing to see here, investigator
2: Brettle. Well, so then he, he gets a warrant for her medical records to see if the doctor's visit she mentioned can confirm this miscarriage.
1: And of course, there's no record of that. But now, because he has the search warrant, he's able to get a closer look at her medical records. And he notices something even more strange. He discovers that years ago, before she even married Chris, she had her tubes tied. She had a tubal ligation What? It's permanent birth control. The chances of pregnancy after tubal ligation are between one8 and 3.7%, and they go down with age and the amount of time since the surgery. And he now knows absolutely positively that Leslie could never have given birth, let alone get pregnant in the first
2: place. In the ensuing investigation, authorities get a warrant for Wilfred's computer, and the search history, and they find the, quote, huggable teddy bear urns at the funeral had been ordered the first week of November. That is five whole days before Leslie supposedly went into preterm
1: labor. She also searched for gravestones and looked up terms like fetal demise and grieving after loss. Five days before she, quote, gave birth. The sonogram photos that were put in frames at the funeral in front of the urns also appear to have been taken from some random website. Explains why folks at the funeral thought they might look a little bit further along than 22 weeks.
2: Investigator Brettel is horrified. Why in the world does someone fake a pregnancy and then fake stillbirths? He would later tell a reporter, I've investigated everything from homicides to armed thefts. I have never encountered anything
1: like this before. But this is just the beginning. Once the police discover that the pregnancy was faked, they start to wonder about all of her other kids. The illnesses, the hospital visits, the bad luck. Maybe it's not at all what it seems. So they get warrants for other documents and medical records for her kids and discover that Luke's liver? It's actually totally fine. Which then calls into question his gallbladder surgery as a kid. Was it completely necessary? They noticed that in his medical records, Leslie took Luke to doctor after doctor after doctor until one doctor agreed to remove the gallbladder. Which, by the way, this is a very common tactic— And also, she's studying to become a nurse, so she has an awareness of the medical field. And in regards to Lena's biological father, they also
2: don't find any police reports suggesting that Leslie was ever sexually assaulted. Now, I'm sure some of you saw this coming, but that also means that no, Sally did not in fact have leukemia. She was not getting chemotherapy. She was a healthy nine-year-old. And that, too, was all fabrication.
1: A week later, the sheriff's department searches the Wilfrids' home, and they walk into the living room, and they find it littered with baby clothes, baby furniture, and baby toys. They notice a pregnancy calendar in the process of being marked off, which is a far cry from what Leslie had told Officer Bredel. And there's something even more disturbing in the primary bedroom.
2: According to police, in the primary bedroom inside a linen closet with a lock is a homemade two-by-two square-foot wooden box screwed to the floor. When officers look inside this box, they find a pillow and blankets. But this is not extra storage for bedding. When they look inside, they find the scribblings of a child on the walls of the box. The horrific details come into focus. A kid has been in here. This is not a fun fort. There's a lock, as I said, and it's on the outside. This is a makeshift cage.
1: When the authorities initially questioned Leslie, she first said that it was for trapped animals. But when they noticed the child's handwriting on the inside, she claims that the box was actually for her stepson, David. Leslie kept him there at night to curb his behavioral issues. Suddenly, David's behavioral problems are starting to make sense.
2: Oof. Regarding poor David. Poor David. First of all, who even knows? Who even knows if the knife story is true? I would say we've learned that Leslie isn't the most reliable narrator, but if it is, if it is, if you kept me locked in a wooden box at night, I'd go after you with a knife too.
1: One thousand percent. I mean, his behavior... Was not the cause of this. His behavior was the reaction of this.
2: Period. And the scribblings inside. It just. It. He's ten. He's ten years old. Yeah, and he must be so confused too, because of the gaslighting going on. Where, on top of being abused at home, he's being treated by strangers as though he is the person that is the problem.
1: I would assume that CPS sees these cases and. They look at the home. And I think what we saw when they reacted so strongly to the stillbirths that they heard about from the teachers, to me it feels like CPS went in, they had a gut feeling that something didn't feel right. Right. The vibes were off. Antennas are up. But, you know, I got to wonder,
2: meanwhile, I just, I want to hear from Chris at this point, Mm. who there's no way he didn't see a box drilled to the floor What is he aware of? Is he aware of the fake cancer, the unnecessary surgeries, the twins? I just, I wonder very much his role in all this.
1: I think Chris is 100,000% culpable for what happened to his son, David. Remember, this isn't even Leslie's biological child. This is Chris's son, David who he co-signed. There's no way she could hide that from him. It was in their bedroom. It was drilled down in their freaking closet. What I will say about Chris is I do think that Leslie found a partner that she could dupe. I think she's someone who purposefully looked for someone who is malleable and easy to control, like Chris, and she was able to go unnoticed for so many years because she intentionally chose her partner.
2: Well, what percent of him is willingly turning a blind eye, and what percent of him is a genuine fool would also be a follow up. I'd have.
1: I, I can't. I'm gonna say I'm gonna go 80-20. twenty. Eighty fool, got it. Twenty blind eye is my is my sort of mathematical statistic brain. Because I think, honestly, you have to be. I think also it's very deeply rooted in gender. I think the fact that she's the woman, she's rearing the children, she's hitting the medical bills, he just needs to go to work and make money and come home and she manages the household. Where Chris, I think, is behaving with willful ignorance and turning a blind eye, and frankly, he's just an easily manipulated fool, We do know that Leslie is one pulling the strings and making this all happen. I mean, she's the monster that's making all of this happen. The same day the
2: police search the Wilfreds' home and find the box, Leslie and her husband Chris are arrested. When interviewed again by investigator Brettel, Leslie tries to say she dreamt about giving birth to one baby and having it cremated and telling people about it, but that was all and that was just a dream. It's barely a week After the fake
1: funeral, they then interview Chris, and he claims complete ignorance of Leslie's lies. Investigator Bredel point blank asks him, How did you not know that your wife was not pregnant as she was lying next to you every night? But he says that he just believed her. He took her at her word. His cooperation with authorities earns him a lighter sentence. He's convicted of only one count of cruelty to children. And he's sentenced to just probation.
2: Meanwhile, Leslie's charged with five counts of child cruelty and one count of theft by deception for taking donations under false pretenses. The bond is set at $50,000, but no one comes to her rescue. Not the church, not the neighbors, because I guess no one wants to be friends with a child abusing narcissist. So that's, that's the line? Yep, that's That's the the line. line. And she crossed it. Okay. Leslie remains in county jail for more than two years. In March 2011, she enters guilty pleas on several counts in Thomas County Superior Court.
1: While she's in court handcuffed, Leslie tells the judge, I know I have done wrong. She claims she had problems since she was born and she could not take back what she did. She promises him if she were to be released, she would not harm society. She's grown. She knows better now. Do you believe her? I sure don't. She has a lot of experience
2: lying. In spite of her pleas for mercy, she's sentenced to eight years in prison and 30 years on probation. Neither parent is allowed to contact the children without explicit permission from the court and other designated agencies. And the kids themselves go into foster care. When examined, doctors find that there's nothing wrong with David medically. Apart from some very understandable PTSD.
1: Poor baby. So glad he got out of that house. So many people had to do their jobs for them to get out of that situation. All of the kids. The town of Thomasville, Georgia, is blown away by the dark and twisted story of Leslie Wilfred. How could this happen in our own community? She fooled everyone. The local paper, the Times-Enterprise-Thomasville, aptly calls it bizarre and shocking.
2: Yeah, that's honestly the understatement of the year. Even after spearheading the investigation, Investigator Bredel himself could hardly believe this happened. Other veteran officers in the town are similarly shaken. Captain John Richards tells a reporter, I've been doing this for 26 years, and I've seen a lot of cases involving physical abuse of children, but I have never seen this. He likens it to something you'd see on TV. He says, you don't think it would
1: actually happen in real life. And thankfully, in this case, the institutions actually worked. Child Protective Services kept tabs on the family and protected the children. They alerted the authorities, and the authorities acted quickly. Kudos to them for doing their job right, especially when it mattered most. But we're still left wondering, why would someone do this?
2: What kind of person fakes a pregnancy and what kind of person wants her kids to be sick?
1: What kind of couple traps their kid in a box and then calls the police on him? We had all of these questions, so we decided to reach out to someone very familiar with this case, someone who understands people like Leslie, people with Munchausen and Munchausen by Proxy. Dr. Mark Feldman, hi. Welcome to Crime of a Lifetime. Hello. It's so good to have you here with us. Quinn and I are so excited to chat with you.
2: Yeah. Thank you for making the time. We just wanted you to introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Sure. I'm a physician named Mark Feldman. I'm clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And my area of research is medical deception. And I've studied it for more than 30 years, which dates me. I'm the author of four books about Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy. The latter is sometimes called medical child abuse. And my latest book is called Dying to be Ill.
1: Well, the dying to be ill, we definitely used a lot in this case. But I was wondering if we could sort of start in a in broad strokes, Can you explain in sort of the simplest terms possible, what is Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy?
3: Well, in Munchausen syndrome, people feign, exaggerate, or actually self-induce either psychological or medical problems in themselves to achieve emotional gratification from seeming to be sick. Now, in Munchausen by proxy, a caregiver who is almost always the mother does the same thing but she feigns or induces illness in one or more of her children it can also involve feigning or inducing illness in a dependent adult or even a pet so the latter is a form of child abuse in most cases
1: it's really it is really scary to hear about these cases and it leads to my question, how common is this? Is this something that happens often? It's not detected? or
3: Well, the quick answer is we don't really know because this is based in deceit, whether it's Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen by proxy. And it takes an extraordinary leap for doctors and others to believe that their patients are lying to them. So I think we're missing most cases. Regarding Munchausen by proxy, it's infrequent, but it's not rare. And that's a big misunderstanding too. I've personally heard about 500 cases over the course of my career.
2: Wow. I want to go back to something you said earlier about categorizing it. Um, Is it, you said it's not a mental illness. It's not What I'm hearing is maybe it's not a personality disorder either, and I read that psychiatrists try to dissociate this condition with mental health so that perpetrators of it can be fairly prosecuted in court. Can you just talk a little bit about what category it falls into and why that's important in cases like this?
3: Yeah, this can get into a bit of hair splitting, but I'll clarify it the best I can. Munchausen by proxy is a form of abuse, and again, that's why I call it medical child abuse. At the same time, it's often affiliated with a known mental illness called factitious disorder imposed on another, a bulky term and one I try not to use, especially in court, because people don't get it. But in terms of its being a recognized mental illness, if the person has factitious disorder imposed on another, it gets in the way in court systems. And perpetrators tend to get very mild sentences when found guilty in courts. And what I've learned over the years is that family courts are focused on reunification, even in the most horrible cases that sometimes end in the death of the child, whereas Um, this sounds a little self-serving, but I'm focused on the safety of the child. So we have some failure to see the situation in the same way. And I've often been disappointed by the outcomes of family court where children in severe risk are returned to the mother's care.
1: Oh, that's so heartbreaking and frustrating. Is there, do you know of any cases where there's been proper punishment For the criminal or the perpetrator of Munchausen or Munchausen by proxy, and do you find that there's any chance for rehabilitation? Is that something that you've encountered?
3: I think the situation in terms of sentencing is getting a little better. Every true crime show on TV and even fictionalized stories on TV or elsewhere have increased the awareness of the public and that includes family court judges and criminal courts, to the reality of Munchausen by proxy, though they tend to present extremely severe cases. But those severe cases are the ones in which I can say there's been appropriate sentences if the perpetrator is the mother. If the perpetrator Mm. is the father, they throw the book at them. And I don't know all the reasons for that, but they tend to feel like depriving the mother of her children is punishment enough. That is, they argue for an order termination of parental rights. So the mother will not see the child again, or if so, will only see under strict supervision. But when it's the father, we see this, and all experts see this. They get many, many years of confinement, and I wish I understood all the sociological reasons for that and legal reasons for that, but it happens. It screams to me
1: of benevolent sexism. Yeah, Yeah, that's totally
2: Um, what it screams to me. That's really fascinating. And it does sound like most of the high profile cases we've come across were the perpetrators were women. What kind of numbers do you see with men with this disorder?
3: Well, 98% of the perpetrators, believe it or not, are women, especially the mother. About 96% of the perpetrators are known to be the mother, at least among published reports. Very rarely is it the father. At least they may be more uh, able to conceal what they've done. But I think the basic reason is that this is a crime of opportunity. And in most societies, mothers are the primary caregivers of the children, so they simply have more access. In most cases, the partners or fathers As it may be, seem to have done anything they can to avoid being aware of what was going on in the house. They often are very traditional men who view the home as the domain of the mother and the children as something she's responsible for. They often work long hours and aren't in the home that much while the children are awake. They may be in the military and gone for long periods of time, but I find in most cases, The partners stand up for the mother, the accused mother, even though they've been unaware of, say, 300 medical visits, they still reflexively stand up for the perpetrator.
1: I have to comment on your book, Dying to be Ill, which is an incredible book. And you were able to get investigator Bob Brettell to write a short narrative of his experience with the Leslie Wilford case, the case that we're covering in this episode. And he wrote that when he searched Leslie's computer records, he found that she actually looked at websites that were describing the symptoms of Munchausen by proxy. And I'm really curious of what you make of that and what that tells us about someone who is so self-aware and how how that affects sort of like whether it's you know the punishment or the disorder how that informs it
3: You know it's unusual. I have only seen a few cases where the mother has researched Munch has them by proxy but there seems to have been some hazy insight in Leslie's case that, This behavior fit a classic pattern of a form Mm. of abuse. What she was going to do with that information, I don't know, because she continued to be abusive. But I can't think of more than two or three cases in my career in which the mother has actively researched Munchasm by proxy.
1: I read somewhere that the presence of social media and these influencers is sort of affecting these Munchausen-by-proxy cases. Can you speak more to that?
3: Yes. 20 years ago, I published an article in the medical literature called Munchausen-by-Internet because I recognized that some caregivers, male or female, post exaggerated information about the illnesses in themselves or in their children. They're often accompanied when it's kids as victims with hospital photos, with tubes coming out of every orifice of the child. I mean, who does that? Some people even refer to it half-jokingly as medical pornography. And when I see medical porn, I wonder about the motives. It wouldn't be my first thought if my child fell ill and had to be hospitalized to tell a group of strangers about it and yet that right. happens over and over and over and that's when there's a criminal prosecution
2: and is it is it all just is that it is it just attention seeking is that what we're looking at i'm i'm very curious why you think p- people develop munchausen's by proxy
3: i think they do have these personality disorders that make it hard to do what the rest of us do, which is be straightforward about what we need. These women haven't developed those skills. There can be a host of reasons, a million reasons, for why they haven't been able to do that. But the problem there, and problems arise almost everywhere you turn, is that these mothers almost never admit to what they've done. The denial is so tenacious that I first wrote about it in 1994 when i was just starting my exploration into the field i wrote an article called denial and munchausen syndrome by proxy you can show these mothers tapes of their suffocating the child for instance using cellophane or using their hand and they deny that they did it and it's that unbelievable that's how deep the denial is or they'll make up some alternate explanation in one case in which a mother covered her infant's nose and mouth with her hand for a long period of time. She said when she viewed the videotape, I was just tickling his mouth. I mean, this is how desperate they become. And these women know what they're doing. Now, they may not have any idea why, but Mm. there's a compulsive or addictive quality in some cases And the mothers lack insight, and they just like controlling other people. They like the attention, and the behavior is reinforced. Unfortunately, they'll always find a lawyer who will buttress what they're saying.
1: You discussed a lot of who it affected. You discussed it affects mostly children, and the perpetrators are usually their mothers. How dangerous is this? I mean, I read somewhere that killing a child is actually ending that sort of like that sort of source of attention. Is that accurate? Or I mean, I'm I'm curious about that.
3: Well, there have been cases where a mother has killed up to eight of her children. That is all eight (sighs) of her children through suffocation. And she seemed to delight in the bereavement rituals, the burials, the funerals. But She was also a little limited intellectually, and while she ultimately admitted to what she had done, she had no idea, it seemed, of why she did it. And her husband stood by her even after her confession to the police, which again shows how hard they work not to be aware of what's happening. The mortality rate among child victims among published reports is 6 to 9%. That is, that many actually die as a result of Munchausen by proxy, which may make it the single most lethal form of child abuse.
2: Because we just spoke about the Leslie Wilfred case, I am curious to know if faking pregnancy is something you see a lot in cases of Munchausens.
3: I often see that and what we generally call factitious bereavement. It can happen with stillborn children. I know of other cases, and they're almost always twins or triplets. And oh, the reason so is there's something particularly poignant about losing not just one, but two children or three children at the same time. And I think that's mm-hmm. why that's selected. It gets immediate notice. So I've noticed that over and over during the past 30 years.
2: And we saw that same like, bold-faced deniability happening with her where when she was confronted After having had this funeral, she denied that it ever even happened, even though there were countless witnesses.
3: That's right. And the teddy bear-shaped urns, I don't know what they were filled with, but it just shows the depth of the denial and the extent to which these mothers will go to try to protect themselves, even when it's patently absurd. Their excuses are absurd and directly defied by the evidence.
2: And with Leslie, she was identified as having Munchausen's. She was prosecuted, but it sounds like from talking to you, that's not necessarily how it usually goes.
3: That's right. And I think that a big piece of her getting a prison sentence was the overt physical abuse of one of the children, not the Munchausen by proxy so much as her literally Mm -hmm. caging one of her children, along with her husband, and lying about it at first, but then it became obvious because they saw the words he had written inside the cage where he was placed nightly. He was found to have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what he went through, but no other mental illness that could ever justify putting him in some sort of cage. So I think that's part of the reason she got uh, a prison sentence and her husband got probation.
1: It's interesting that she got caught because of the outright physical abuse and the Munchausen by proxy sort of followed, which seems to be it's like they need this big red flag before they can even investigate and get the resources to do so.
3: I think that's exactly right.
2: You wrote in your book that factitious illness is one of the most controversial problems in medicine. Can you talk a little about that?
3: It's controversial because doctors don't want to deal with it, and other healthcare professionals may even deny that it occurs. Family court judges deny it time after time, no matter how much evidence I present. And that, I think, relates to the fact that it's embarrassing to doctors to be misled by people who may have way less education than the doctor does mm. they're probably not going to be paid at all for their care because these patients have run through their insurance and uh even now i can't identify very many munchausen experts in the world nobody wants to deal with it oh. and in fact yeah. in residential treatment programs if you tell them them ahead of time that the patient has factitious disorder or munchausen syndrome they often end the discussion at that point and say we can't provide the degree of safety for this patient that is going to be required or we have no one on staff who knows anything about this. So we're going to deny oh.
1: it. Dr. Mark, Mark Feldman, <laughs> I'm thank you so
2: much <laughs> oh, for your time.
3: I'm, I really appreciate the chance to get information out there. My books are well-read, they're well-reviewed, but most of my publications, in fact, just about all of them, have been in medical journals, which about 10 people read. So I know you can reach a vast audience. And that's why I relish the opportunity to be on programs like yours.
1: Oh my gosh, you can come back anytime. Thank you for letting us pick your brain and talking about this not well known syndrome. You know, it's something that I think a lot of people hear about, but I think and a, have... a lot of people are fascinated by, yeah. including. Dare I say <laughs> us. And I think to have the opportunity to have an expert who's so who has so much information. I mean, I'm just, I can't thank you enough for oh, coming
3: well, on. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Whoa. Wow.
1: <laughs>
2: that was crazy,
3: right? That was
1: if you could awesome. see my face, my mind is blown. <laughs> that was awesome. I just can't believe every point that he brought up. It's like Leslie Wilfred fit this to a T. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It seems like she's really textbook, but
2: what is so scary is the part that's so not textbook and so unprecedented is the fact that she got caught.
1: Well, it's the fact that she was actively abusing a child, and that's what got her caught. That's what saved her four children.
2: It crossed into this other form of abuse that we're so much more comfortable identifying
1: and prosecuting. Because it's black and white, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. We can't, even, we can't even know. I mean, like we mentioned about the gallbladder being called into question, you know, with Luke, but we don't know for sure. There's no way to prove that definitively. Without an expert, you know, I mean, from a prosecutorial standpoint, it's hard to prove something that doesn't have a lot of research backing. So I'm sure his work has been incredibly valuable to the criminal justice system to help sort of put these cases to adjudicate these cases and put these criminals behind bars. Catch more gripping
2: stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next.
1: This episode's sources include reporting by Lauren Grush for foxnews.com and Patty Dozier for the Times Enterprise, the local Thomasville newspaper. We also drew from the incredible book Dying to be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception by Dr. Mark Feldman, which has tons of fascinating information about medical deception and an excerpt written by investigator Bob Bredel about his experience with the Leslie Wilford case. We highly recommend Dr. Feldman's book for anyone curious about learning more about Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy. And a huge thank you to investigator Bob Breddle, who actually
2: spoke to our associate producer Hazel on background to help us better understand the case. And of course, to Dr. Mark Feldman for answering all our questions about Munchausen. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins and Hazel May.
1: Our associate producers are Hazel May and us.
2: Quinlan Posner
1: and Carrie Epema.
2: Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our
1: senior producer is John Frasher.
2: McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.